future of business is responsible. El futuro de los negocios es reescribir el crecimiento de las empresas. Conscious commingling of growth and impact. Le futur du business est conscient et responsable. The future of business is intentional and transparent. Welcome to Future of Business, a podcast run by a team of MBA students which takes you behind the walls of the business school to explore the diverse range of sectors and stories embedded in the Oxford MBA cohort and beyond and how they will shape the future of business. My name is Rudolf Okai. Today we will talk about climate change. Joining me now is Alexis McGivin, who is an MBA student here at the Side Business School. Prior to the MBA, she worked at the International Union on Conservation of Nature, working on issues of plastic pollution, worked as Education Director of the Oxford Climate Society, and also co-founded 26,000 Climate Conversations, an initiative to encourage meaningful conversations about the climate. Welcome, Alexis. Thanks so much for having me, Rudolf. You're welcome. So I think there's a lot to talk about, but I would like us to start with what is the state of our climate at the moment? Yeah, I think there's a few things that are undeniable about the state of our climate, which is our climate is changing very significantly. Uh, we're seeing increased warming and we're seeing increasingly more that the hottest years are the most recent years. So the last 10 years have been the hottest years on record. Um, and we're also seeing it that it's undeniable that it's anthropogenic, which is what we call human-caused or human-induced climate change. So we're no longer able to really deny that it's human-caused. Um, and that's really important because it means that we need to be part of driving that solution. And I think what I want to emphasize at the top, what's important about climate change is we talk a lot about saving the planet. The planet will be fine without us. Um, the problem is sustaining the ability for humans to live on the planet and especially sustaining the ability for humans in all parts of the world to live on the planet. Because what we see with climate change is that its effects are very distributed. Um, here in the UK, we're seeing some floods, we're seeing some changed weather, but we're not seeing the devastating impacts of climate change. In other parts of the world, um, especially in the global south, we're seeing really devastating impacts of climate change. We're seeing massive cyclones, typhoons. We're seeing people's homes being lost. We're seeing droughts that are making it difficult to survive and live and grow food. And so it's it's important to understand that the, the effects of climate change are very distributed. And we need to make sure that the earth is a place where everyone can live and everyone can be safe into the future. Great. So would you say that was impetus behind the nations and the president and the leaders meeting in Scotland for the COP26? There was a whole lot of talk about COP26 saving the climate. Can you give us something like COP26 for dummies? Sure. So um, COP26, uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. Um, and that is basically the parties to this convention, which is it's quite long. It's the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. We call it UNFCCC for short. And that was signed in 1992. And every year since then, uh, the Conference of the Parties, so the parties who are party to that agreement, meet um, to discuss the state of the climate and what action should be taken. And so this is just the 26th uh, conference, uh, actually now in the 27th year, because we missed last year uh, COP26. Um, and so we meet every year to discuss the state of the climate and what can be done. So it's not only countries that are meeting, it's also businesses, civil society organizations and industry and many other players. Um, Glasgow was actually the most attended COP ever, which is quite interesting in a COVID year that uh, had a lot of travel restrictions and a lot of people that were tuning in online. Um, but essentially what happens at COP is that 
you have certain objectives before the conference of what you want to get done. And for this uh, conference, what we needed to do was establish what we call the Paris rulebook. So I don't know if you remember that COP21, which happened in 2015 in Paris, was one of the most significant COPs to ever happen. We had an agreement, um, which is sounds like not a big deal, but is a huge deal, which is that all the parties to the convention, so all of the countries in the world, agreed to limit warming to two degrees and aiming towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, we use these temperature ranges and what we mean is global temperature change. It's, it's quite confusing because some regions might see much higher than 1.5 temperature uh, change, but overall we're looking for 1.5. Um, it's important to note right now we're at about 1.13 degrees of warming. Um, and we always, um, compare this to pre-industrial levels. So uh, in climate science, we're able to understand what the temperature of the earth was like before the start of the industrial revolution, and we always compare temperatures to that. So there was uh, this key objectives of Glasgow was to establish the Paris rule book, especially with regard to um, a, a few key things, which is basically establishing what we call a t common time frame for, for change. And also one thing that was really sticky and difficult and that ended up not being resolved at the last COP, which was in Madrid, was um, something that we call Article 6, um, which is an article within the Paris uh, Agreement that is about carbon markets. So carbon markets um, have been introduced and kind of played around with by COP and also by other um, non-government stakeholders. And what we needed to do in Glasgow was to really establish a clear rule book of how we should trade carbon credits. Um, and the idea of a carbon credit is, um, let's say if Ghana uh, has a goal for, for uh, emissions reduction and they actually make that goal and even are, are far above that goal, they have extra carbon credits that they can sell to, for example, the United States. Um, as you can see, just in that example, it's a really complicated and, and quite messy uh, system because it can introduce quite big power inequalities. And what's happening um, more and more is that uh, countries in the global north are basically convincing countries in the global south to not emit so that they can buy their carbon credits off them. So it, there's a big tension between environment and development and, and power. COP26 is essentially a meeting of many stakeholders to discuss what can be done on the climate. From what you said, it looks like there are a lot of collaborations between the host nations, the businesses and other stakeholders. How do you see them working together? Is it working? What are the tackles? What problems are they facing? Uh, what are the challenges? And how has it been like with, between these entities? Yeah, definitely. So one thing that has changed significantly in the last 10 years or so is that the conditions of and the reality of climate change is so stark and so apparent that businesses and different stakeholders can no longer deny that it is happening and therefore they can no longer sit on the side of inaction. So what we're seeing more is that there are different stakeholders who are trying to get involved in working on climate change. However, I think what's really scary and what's happening more and more and what is a very big concern to uh, people in the climate space, climate justice space, is that we're seeing stakeholders using the language of action to kind of mask their inaction. So a really good example of this is the narrative and discussion around net zero. So net zero is a concept that came from climate science, and it's the idea that we need to balance our emissions. So we need to balance outgoing emissions with emissions that we are sequestering, so emissions that we are eliminating or offsetting. The problem with net zero is that we really need to focus on bringing down emissions as much as possible, as quickly as possible. 
And what net zero and the discussion around net zero has done is shifted the conversation from reducing emissions and moved it instead towards offsetting emissions. The problem with offsetting emissions is that it doesn't actually, while it's good for balancing the books and it allows countries and government and, and uh, businesses to look like they're balancing their books in terms of outgoing and sequestered emissions, it doesn't actually bring down the global level of emissions. So in the example I gave earlier, if Ghana does really well on their climate commitments or in another scenario, which is perhaps a more likely scenario, where they're not emitting because they've been convinced not to um, in order to keep their carbon credits to sell off to the United States. We're not overall reducing the amount of emissions. We're just moving around who is has ownership of them. And so what's really scary is that, for example, we see places like BlackRock is a good example, where a few years ago, their CEO, uh, Larry Fink, came out and said that their entire portfolio would be net zero. And many people hailed this as a, as a great decision, but the problem is it's just fancy accounting. It's not anything that is actually changing the state of our climate or the level of emissions. It's just people buying off offsets in places around the world, which then intersects with a huge number of issues. For example, what's happening more and more is that we're seeing land grabs for carbon. So a lot of indigenous peoples are being kicked off their land so that they places can buy their land and basically say, this forest, we're now no longer going to cut off, cut down the trees in this forest or use any part of this forest. Therefore, we're going to count those carbon credits so that, uh, you know, somewhere in, uh, in the global north, we can continue to emit. So I think that the thing that's really concerning and the thing that we need to stay so vigilant about is understanding that there's a huge amount of greenwashing going on. And that was basically all that COP26 was, was announcement after announcement was really flashy, a lot of really nice headlines. And then when you scratch the surface, you would see that the whole thing crumbled apart and that we're not seeing the very urgent reduction in emissions that we need um, in order to maintain a healthy future on the planet. All right. So that seems to be what some of the businesses are doing. What about the other nations? Uh, do you see stricter restrictions in their regulations? Are they putting in tighter laws to kick against the? Because I can imagine that a developing nation will take some money from the United States or some of the developed countries to take something like solar, then for them to get a carbon credit, just as you said. Uh, mm-hmm. But how do you see the other nations responding? Are they seeing it from a business side of view or they are seeing it from the humanity point? <laughs> I think very few countries are seeing it from a humanity point of view. I think everyone... It's kind of a race to the bottom at the moment. So who can emit the most in the time frame that they have while it's still while they're still able to do it? I think there's a huge, huge gap in ambition and in capacity. So, for example, the United Kingdom, who is the host of this year's COP, who made a big deal about raising um, the ambition and encouraging countries to to really bring as much dedication as possible to the conference. This government is in the middle of opening, trying to open new oil fields and trying to open new coal plants when we have absolutely agreed that there can be no new fossil fuel extraction and uh, in order to stay within the 1.5 degree limit. So the UK, while, while speaking a big talk about how important it is to urgently stop climate change, they are in fact benefiting from fossil fuel extraction. And I think the, the main thing that we're really seeing, which is really tough and problematic, is that not only are they not reducing their emissions, they're also not providing the support or capacity to very vulnerable nations that are experiencing the impacts of climate change right now. So one thing that was really contentious at COP was this idea of loss and damage funding. So that's basically 
we bucket climate action into two big buckets. One is mitigation, that's reducing emissions, and the other is adaptation, so that's adapting to climate change. So making sure we have things like resilient infrastructure or um, seawalls to to prevent to protect houses from sea level rise, things like that. But when we go beyond adaptation, when there's no longer capacity to adapt because the change is so vast, there are people, especially within the climate justice movement, who are calling for loss and damage funding, which is basically kind of like re- climate reparations. It's the idea that rich nations who have caused climate change should pay. Countries like Bangladesh, for example, who is one of the most affected by climate change, in order to compensate them for the losses that they've incurred. And so what was really disappointing about COP is that we did not see any commitment of loss and damage funding, apart from Nicola Sturgeon, who's the leader of Scotland, committing £1 million into a loss and damage fund. But in general, we're just not seeing enough ambition. and, And the problem is it's all talk and no action. All right. So I'm very much aware that before the COP26, there was this promise of 100 billion funding to support developing nations and to support the movement. And before the COP, there was this talk about the countries not fulfilling them. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually surprised they are bringing this in again. But how do you think you will get bigger nations, the developed nations, putting their money where it matters? Because there's this ambition, they are giving all this talk. And from what you said, it sounds like greenwashing. Mm. But how do you get them to actually commit? Because from what I see, it's going to take a lot of financial muscles to be able to tackle this. Because you need to change the technologies. You need to get it. When you're taking out fossil, you need to replace the energy. So how do you see the businesses committing their money to it? Because some also say, well, fossil is giving us money. Just like mm. you said, you're making money. They need to take out their citizens. They need to be profit. So then now there's tension between profit and purpose. Mm. So how do you see the companies transition? to move away from just making money and being responsible with profit while they change the environment as well? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult question. Fundamentally, what I see as quite important is for many stakeholders, including business, to question whether or not infinite growth is possible or desirable. I think that's one of the key things that we need to consider and discuss is whether or not we can survive under this model of exploitative capitalism, which I personally don't think that we can. I think what we need to see more and more is, and this is something that everyone can do if they're living in a democratic country, is to really push their leaders on climate finance and to make sure that that translates to stricter regulation on business in order to pay for their negative externalities. That's what we call basically the impacts of their business that are not considered within the bounds of, of their kind of cost benefit analysis. So when a, when companies are able to pollute with basic, basically right now impunity, there, there is changing regulation, but for the moment it's so easy to go around that it's, it's almost like the regulation is there just in name in many places in the world. And so we really need to see more ambition to, to make sure that they are A, being taxed accordingly, which will then hopefully make these things less appealing. And then we need to see government support and government subsidies of things that will contribute to a better world. So we've talked a lot in the post-COVID or in the COVID era of green recovery. So that's government spending that not only brings people back on board in terms of after a very difficult economic year and a half, two years, but also allows us to move forward on climate goals. So an example of this would be government subsidizing installation of solar grids that not only gives people jobs and training and brings communities onto the electricity grid that might not otherwise have been, but it also allows us to phase away from from fossil fuels. 
So there are lots of win-win scenarios, but there are also lots of scenarios in which very powerful people who have benefited from exploitation and and this growth model will need to empower people to to take back the power from from those people at the top. All right. So what I do realize is that the oil majors are all talking about going into green energy. So you have BP coming up with hydrogen strategy, going into wind energy, Shell doing the same. Mm-hmm. How do you see them transitioning? Are you, do, you, do you see that something to balance the books or genuinely want to change the energy source mm-hmm. and change the climate? Because what you do realize is, well, if accepted that climate change is happening, mm-hmm. what are your regulations coming of them? Well, there's a chance for them to buy carbon credits. Yeah. But how do you see them making an impact with this? Are they, do you genuinely think they are going this route because they see that the industry is becoming like a dinosaur, which can mm-hmm. face out? Or they're just doing that to balance the accounting when it comes to oil measures. Yeah. Oh, I'm a very cynical person. So I see it more as them trying to mitigate risk. There's an increasing risk of what we call stranded assets, which is basically that there's these kind of invest, huge investments that are made that end up needing to be abandoned because either because of changing regulation or because of the impacts of climate change itself. I'm also, I think that they see it as an opportunity for growth, but I'm extremely suspicious of companies that have historically done nothing but try to block genuine action on climate, like BP and, and Shell, and them trying to get into a space where they can ethically generate clean energy. I think the the issue that we're not looking into so much is how these renewable energy, and uh, hydrogen is actually a really good example, or hydropower is another great example of how they basically can create unintended consequences for other areas of climate, of the climate justice movement. So climate justice, by the way, I've mentioned it a few times, is this idea that we can pursue social justice at the same time as pursuing ecological justice. So this idea that climate justice brings together the fact that we are all, we are all exploited under and suffering because of capitalism and that we can kind of seek liberation on, on multiple fronts. And I think what I would rather see, uh, rather than big places like BP or Exxon or Shell moving into the renewable energy space, I'd rather see power move away from them and into community-led uh, energy, community-led energy, which is happening increasingly in, in the UK, for example, where there's actually a place very near to Oxford, which is a solar field that is entirely owned by the community that was entirely financed and, and operates and is operated by the community. And I would much see, rather see that where the community has a stake in what energy they receive, also increasingly happening in Germany and in other places. I'd rather see that than these massive profit-focused oil majors moving into renewable energy. I think they've had their time in the sun, and I think it's time to move to a different system now. All right, so from what you just said, it means it will take a lot of commitment from the people in the communities. But then let me ask you on this. Uh, when you talk about Africa, so I know Africa probably admits, correct me if I'm wrong, about 3% of emissions. And so you hear African nations saying, we just found oil, we just found mm-hmm. gas that can help us with industrialization. We are not emitting that much, but the West has benefited from capitalism. This is a chance to mm-hmm. also bring our people out of poverty. How do you talk to a leader like that? How do yeah. you bring them on board and say, we know you want to liberalize your people, you, you want to give them jobs, you want to industrialize, but we don't need you to bring this up. So how do you mm-hmm. talk to people like that? It's really difficult. I mean, this, this is where I'm saying there's a huge tension between um, climate and development. There's this idea that we were first in in the kind of late 90s discussing, which is what we call CBDR, Common But Differentiated Responsibility. And so this idea that 
that we would have, we all have a common responsibility to, to reduce our emissions, but some have more responsibility than others. And so, um, what was agreed to in kind of landmark decision in, in 1997 in a Kyoto agreement was that we did, we split countries into what we call Annex One and non-Annex One countries. So Annex One were already industrialized countries and non-Annex One were developing countries. And so they said Annex One needs to cut, but non-Annex One can in- continue to emit uh, in the goal of development. The problem is, is that the United States was not pleased with this. They said, unless everyone cuts, we won't sign the agreement. So the United States famously decided not to ratify the Kyoto Convention. And then it kind of crumbled without a superpower like the United States inside it. So it's really difficult to balance between wanting developing countries to to be able to rise to a to a level of a standard of living, to be able to develop in line with the sustainable development goals, so having major priorities and concerns like healthcare for everyone, education, clean water, these are all extremely relevant concerns, but what we find difficult is that those often contradict with climate goals. And there's a really, really good academic paper that came out in um, 2017, which looked at the sustainable development goals and how many of them were resource conserving versus resource constraining. And they found that they were outnumbered five to one. So sustainable, if we fulfilled all the sustainable development goals, we do that at the expense of climate and the environment. So it, it does become a huge tension. And I do very much understand that there is this, you know, desire to, to move forward and to grow. I think the question is how we can do that instead of going through the same phases. So going through dirty emissions and then now in, in, in places in the global north, we're moving towards clean emissions just what we call leapfrog. So trying to leapfrog over that and going straight to clean emissions. So instead of tapping those oil fields, instead going straight to solar, wind, geothermal energy, which obviously is more is more difficult, more technical. But the idea is that there should be a sharing of capacity, understanding, technology transfer in order to make that possible from the get-go rather than cycling through. The problem is that it's much easier. We have It's much easier and it's much cheaper to just exploit um, fossil fuels. The problem is, is that those countries that are exploiting them will often also be on the front lines of climate change. So it's a very, very difficult decision for leaders to make um, this idea of climate versus development. Well, I guess that's a lot of things to think about. But then you've been in this space for a while. You've been doing this for a couple of years now. How is the Oxford MBA helping you trying to change the world in, in that space? Yeah, so I have only ever worked uh, for a nonprofit. I worked at um, a big NGO called um, International Union for Conservation of Nature. And my time there was uh, funded by a Swiss foundation called Gallifrey Foundation. So I've only ever worked in the nonprofit space. And from my pers- our perspective at IUCN, we had two kind of relationships with business. It was either trying to fight against them, to push against them. And it was like we were flicked away like little bugs. Like we had no resources, no cast, no capacity, always operating on a shoestring budget. And so it was very easy for them to dismiss us when we called for, you know, greater action. And then the other relationship that was increasingly happening near, near the end of my, my time there was businesses who wanted to do a highly visible, but not very impactful project. So giving us money to do, I worked in plastic pollution. So getting money to do a beach cleanup or something that really doesn't change anything. It's like, it's feel good and it's a good uh, photo opportunity, but doesn't actually change anything. And I was getting so frustrated being within that space and not understanding the logic of business. And as well, coming from from my background, um, which is obviously, uh, if it's not already clear, quite a very left-wing ideology, I it was hard to understand the logic of business other than a cartoonishly 
evil, you know, sitting in a boardroom, twirling mustaches, trying to decide how to destroy the world. And I know that that is, well, I hope that that is not the case for, for many businesses. I do genuinely believe that there are probably people in businesses that are doing very bad things, but who are very good people and who either don't know the impacts of their actions, I hope, or who are just maybe falsely believe that that is the way towards a better future. And so what I wanted to do was to do the MBA, to understand the logic of business, to understand the language of business and then be able to understand it from the inside and then take those learnings back to not only the NGO world, but also um, my kind of grassroots organizing, community organizing spaces and say, these are the opponents that we're up against. And this is their internal logic. This is their internal way of organizing. And this is how this is their pain points. And this is where we need to kind of attack. And so going forward, I'm still really trying to decide what I like to be in the private sector, learning how things work at probably the expense of my own alignment of my morals and what I'm doing every day, every day, or would I rather take my learnings and go straight back to the NGO space? However, understanding that the NGO space is also riddled with inefficiencies, bureaucracy, and just general difficulties, I guess, of working on a shoestring budget all the time, being stressed and and overworked. So now I'm kind of in the process of deciding post MBA, would I rather stay a little bit more in the private sector, learn how it works, um, having never worked in the private sector before, or go back to my safe community where everyone thinks like me and swim a little bit against less against the tide, but maybe at the expense of what is better for for the planet overall. All right, that's great. So when you when you see the climate change, the fight against climate change, tell us what are your plans? What do you want to see? in the next five years, in the next 10 years, because I know all these countries, businesses are talking about net zero 2030, net zero 2050. I think India came up with net zero 2070. Mm -hmm. But you, Alexis, what do you want to see in the next 10 years? For us to see we're either on track, Mm -hmm. we are veering off, or there's hope and optimism. Is there hope and optimism? Uh, One of the things I took most away from my time in Glasgow was there is always hope when when you have power to the people there's always hope when you're empowering people from below to to act and and i was spent a lot of time in in uh community organizing spaces and with other activists and i got a lot of energy from that believing that we can create a better world there's there's a uh, extinction rebellion chant which is um we are unstoppable another world is possible and i really like that it it, it makes me actually quite emotional to just think that there is a possibility if we work hard to, to create another better world. What I would like to see urgently, I guess, in the next few years is a massive commitment towards climate finance. I would love to see a huge fund towards loss and damage to make sure that people right now are not dying because of climate change as they are now. I think it's there's nothing more important to me than than getting loss and damage funding. I think that would be a priority. The second, I guess, what I'm really passionate about and what I'm, I think I'm trying to do with this MBA is to get people to understand what true net zero is and what a false net zero is. And I would like to see my fellow MBA classmates being able to go into their future businesses that might have nothing to do with climate and to be able to actively articulate what it means to have a 1.5 degree net aligned net zero target and or not. And so um, I would love to see more scrutiny, more education, more understanding of what true net zero is and to be able to make our, our goals in line with that. And then thirdly, I'd love to see in the next future COPs, just more ambition from historical emitters, especially in the United Kingdom. I have obviously have a stake in what the UK does because I'm, I've been here for a number of years and I'll stay here for a while yet. I'd love to see more ambition. I'd love to see them 
really take responsibility for their actions. And I'd also love to see players like China and India, these big upcoming, or not even upcoming, now have arrived big players to also really recognize their power and their capacity for change in their more, more recent but also very important historical emissions. So. Looks like the world has to come together like the way they fought climate change, COVID and everything. Mm. They need to come together, work together for the greater good. That's all we have time for today. But before you go, I want to ask you a question. What is your favorite place at the University of Oxford? Oh, good question. I'm obsessed with the Radcliffe camera. I just spend, I try to not go longer than a week without sitting in front of the Radcam or being inside the Radcam. I think it's one of the most like beautiful, it's obviously an iconic building in Oxford. I just love studying there. I love being there. And it makes me so happy to think that there are thousands of scholars who have spent hundreds of years studying there. It makes me feel really part of, of history. So I love the Radcam. And... I think everybody do love the Radcam <laughs> camera. So thank you very much for coming, Alexis. Yeah. We were happy to have you. Thank you.